chapter 6, looking at a large chunk this morning, but um, you'll see while we're, while we're doing that, um, it's not going to be a two-hour sermon, rest assured. Exodus 6, beginning in verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech." Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land, out of Egypt. Now these are the heads of their father's households. The sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanuk and Paulu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. <clears throat> These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations. Gershon, and Kohath, and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, according to their families, the sons of Kohath, Amram, and Izhar, and Hebron, and Uziel. And the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites, according to, to their generations. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, and Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, and Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elsheba, the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Neshon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, and Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the families of the Korahites. Aaron's son, Eliezer, married one of the daughters of Putiel. And she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's households of the Levites, according to their families. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the sons, they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Now, it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did it. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. Moses 
was 80 years old, and Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. The title of this sermon is God's Spokesman. God's Spokesman. And I desire this morning, church, that you would know and act upon what God expects from you and from me. That you would know and act upon what God expects from you and from me as God's spokesman. Think about uh, somebody who speaks on a witness stand. Or a politician who is making great speeches and promises about his policies. Have you ever noticed how if somebody is opposed to what the witness will say, if they're trying to defend the defendant or if they're trying to promote the opposing political party, the witness stand, or excuse me, the, the witness and uh, the politician, their background suddenly becomes a point of discussion. Efforts will be taken to discredit the witness or discredit the politician, more so than trying to, to prove their claims are false. They will first go to their character is untrustworthy, and they are not qualified to speak on the witness stand or to lead in any form of government and have policies. If you are a witness or if you're a politician, your background, your history matters. So it is with God's spokesman. We see that specifically here when it comes to Aaron, not me, Moses' brother, Aaron. When it comes to Moses' brother, Moses' brother Aaron, uh, he is described here and named a prophet. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I shall, see, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So, where are we here? We're at the end of what's widely considered the introduction to the book of Exodus. So we haven't really got into the action yet. And you'll notice in verses 8, that's where the action starts. And it goes all, all the way into chapter uh, 11. This is all the plagues, all the miracles that God does through Aaron and Moses. So we're right on the brink of all of those Great judgments and the redemption of God's people, the deliverance from slavery. We're right there at the cusp of it. So the question is, is, is asked then, why this genealogy here and now? It seems so out of place. It seems like it's just inserted because there's no other place to put it. We have to get a genealogy in here somewhere, so we might as well get it in there right before the action starts. Because once the action gets rolling, then there's no kind of no turning back. It's a bad time to interrupt. That's one proposal that some theologians have proposed, that there's just no better place. That's just, that's just lazy. Uh, that's just a lazy excuse you know, reason for it. Another reason that's proposed is that the author wanted, apparently, to give suspense for that coming action. So he's building up into it, and it's kind of like a commercial break where there's that cliffhanger, and you and you got to stay tuned to find out what happens after the commercial break. Uh, that's not why this genealogy is here. Uh, another uh, proposal for why this is here is, well, it's just a sneaky way of proving that the Israelites were really in Egypt for 400 years. It was just, just there for historical fact, and it's just there to give you know, validity uh, to the timeline of the Israelites in Egypt. Another um, 
reason, which gets a little closer, I think, is that it gives the children of these families, remember Moses is writing to the second generation of freed Israelites. He's not writing necessarily to these people here in the text that are experiencing the Exodus. He's actually writing to their children after their parents had long passed. So he's writing this genealogy in uh, to show them their family lineage, their history, to give them encouragement that as they go into the land of Canaan, the promised land, that God's promises are still for them. They can connect to the names here in this passage. But if he were to do that, if that was his intent, why did he not list all the 12 tribes of Israel. If you'll notice with me, verse 14, these are the heads of their households. Chapter 6, verse 14, the sons of Reuben. Then verse 15, the sons of Simeon. And then verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi, and it doesn't go on through the rest of the sons. Remember in Exodus chapter 1, all the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are named. It goes Reuben, Simeon, Levi, same order. But it does go on to Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, and so on. So why does Moses not do that here if that's his intent? Well, I believe that it's not his main intent. I believe there's a more obvious purpose for this genealogy. More than just finding out if the pastor can read through all the names without stumbling, which I cannot. It is to validate Aaron, the brother of Moses, as his legitimate partner in the Exodus event and as prophet, the spokesman of God. And, of course, his eventual seating into the office of high priest in God's tabernacle. He is setting up Aaron and his genealogy, his credentials, his credibility for the great tasks that lie ahead of Aaron. Uh, uh, you might wonder at this point, why do I care? <laughs> right? Who cares if Aaron is, you know, a legitimate prophet, a legitimate leader? Who cares about his lineage? Well, God does. That's why he wrote it. The Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this genealogy for a purpose, and that purpose matters. Because, after all, God places a high importance, a great weight, a great significance upon his prophets. A prophet is not simply someone who tells the future. That's not, strictly speaking, just what a prophet does. A prophet is a spokesman. He is a representative. He is one who speaks or proclaims the message of another, and specifically of God. A prophet is a spokesman. He is God's spokesman. So when a prophet speaks, God speaks. When he prophesies, he, what he is doing is not merely telling the future. He, that word to prophesy actually means to herald or proclaim. It's not to predict. Abraham was a prophet, Genesis 20. Moses was a prophet, Numbers 11. And here, in chapter 7, verse 1 of Exodus, Aaron is a prophet. Now, that matters. And we'll get into the, uh, the principles of the prophet. Why a prophet matters and what God wants, to, wants for, from you and from me when it comes to this office of proclamation. But first... I, I do need to prove to you, I believe, that Aaron is the focus here. Now, of course, in verse 14 and 15, I mentioned already that uh, 
Simeon, or excuse me, Reuben and Simeon, their families are mentioned. Then when we get to Levi, it stops there, and great detail is given into the genealogy and the lineage of Levi, his family. Levi's sons, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. And, and, then, and then the focus even narrows further. The focus goes to Kohath's children, and then Amram's children, which are Aaron and Moses. But it, notice that it doesn't, also in this, in this genealogy, it doesn't mention Moses' wife or his children, but it does for Aaron. There's a reason. It's because the focus is on him as prophet. Notice also the way that the genealogy begins and ends. There's a difference. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's households. Then he gets into the tribes, beginning with Reuben. These are the heads of their households. Then look with me down at verse 25, how it ends. These are the heads of the father's households. Sound familiar? But it doesn't stop there. These are the heads of the father's households of the Levites according to their families. So it begins with a more general statement about the heads of the father's households, but specifically at the end, he gets to what he's driving at. He wants you to know the heads of the households of Levi, of this tribe, this family, specifically Aaron's placement in that family. Another point, another proof is the role of Aaron in the miracles and the plagues. As I mentioned before, Exodus chapter 7, verse 10 through 12. Look, look at that. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I think when we think about the miracles and the plagues, we think of Moses, right? In that robe and the, the beard and with the staff. We think of him. But notice, at least for the first three plagues, Moses isn't the one lifting the staff. It's Aaron. The miracles are done through him. Exodus 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and thus they did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh called, also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. But for each one, excuse me, for each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Again, if you jump down to verse 19 of chapter 7, then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, Aaron, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did, even as the Lord commanded. And he, who lifted up the staff? Well, if they did what the Lord commanded, Aaron did and so it is also, just real quickly, in chapter 8, verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So at least the first three um, plagues and miracles of judgment done by God is done specifically through this man, Aaron, this prophet. So it would be good if, if we understand who this man is. Is he qualified? Why is it Aaron and not Moses, right? Not only this, but I think this is really neat how it's introduced. Look back with me at Exodus chapter 6, verse 12. Exodus chapter 6, verse 12. It says, well, in verse 11, it says, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let, her, let the sons of Israel go out of the, his land. But notice Moses' response. Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. See, Moses' doubt 
due to his ineloquence here in verse 12, is the topic at hand. After all, notice in verse 30, after the genealogy, right? Because after that, after his doubt, there's a genealogy. And then after the genealogy, right after, in verse 30, again, but Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses' hesitancy to speak before Pharaoh, to be God's spokesman, is the topic at hand. And notice God's response in chapter 7, verse 1. I make you as God to Pharaoh. I make Aaron and your brother. Aaron shall be your prophet. He will be the spokesman. He'll speak, not you. That's the focus. Now, remember, did, did Moses bring up his ineloquence, his, his, his heavy tongue, it's translated? Did he bring that up already? Yes. In chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Then Moses said to the Lord, Be pleased, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I, and we don't know what that is exactly, if he stuttered, or if he had a speech impediment, or if he was just really bad in conversation or intimidated, or if he was uh, not uh, schooled and, and didn't have all those words in his arsenal. We don't know exactly what it is, but whatever his limitation was, notice God's answer. Verse 11 The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I even I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. That's a great response, but still Moses is is hesitant. He says, verse 13, please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will. Just not me is the idea. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. So you see, before the last time that Moses brought up his limitations, God's answer was Aaron, right? This time again in chapter 6, when Moses brings up his limitation again, what's God's answer? It's Aaron again. And so he, we get to his actual answer in chapter 7, verse 1. But the author wants us to know before we get that answer, that Aaron is the answer for your limitation. I want you, reader, to, be, to know that Aaron is qualified for this task. Okay, And once you understand, it's kind of like a movie where you'll, the plot will go and then there's a break and... and we are transported back into the backstory of the main character, and it's in black and white or something like that, right? You've seen those kind of movies where it's in black and white. It's like, okay, obviously this is the past, and we're learning who this person is really in his background. And then it comes back to color, and we continue on, and we, we now experience the rest of the story knowing this guy's backstory. Does that make sense? So that's what's, that's what's happening here. Moses is pausing here, giving us the backstory of Aaron, his, his rightful uh, uh, role as prophet of God and of Moses, the rightful instrument of God's miracles and judgment and deliverance of the Israelites. He establishes that he is worthy and he is credentialed to have that role. And then in chapter 7, he gets to watch what Aaron does, watch, or rather, watch what God does through Aaron. But again, who cares? Some of us might be thinking that. And again, I would say, if Aaron is the prophet, if he is God's spokesman, and the spokesman of God through Moses, then this matters. Because a spokesman has a high priority in the kingdom of God. A prophet, as I've already said, is God's spokesman. He who speaks 
and proclaims the message of God. That's what a prophet is. That's what a spokesman of God is. Now, today, there are no prophets, at least not by that title. Today, there are heralds. There are spokesmen. There are proclaimers. There's preachers, we call them today. Because today, we, the, the preacher does not proclaim inerrant, perfect words. When I stand here, I do not claim that every single word I say is inspired of God and it's perfect. I may falter. And that's where your prayers come in for me, that I would not say something errant or wrong. Don't assume that you can just absorb everything without qualification. Be a Berean that early church that heard the teachings of the preacher and compared it with Scripture to make sure they lined up. Be that kind of a Christian. Be that kind of a church. But nonetheless, the principles that we learn about how God relates to his prophet and how the prophet relates to the people, the principles we can pull out and bring over into our New Testament time and translate that into the principles between how the preacher relates to God and relates to the people. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to draw those principles out, but I want to be clear that that's what we're doing. I am not a prophet. So please, don't think of me that way. The principles apply to us today, not the roles of prophets. Now, first of all, we see here when it comes to the spokesman, I'm, I'm going to use the word spokesman instead of prophet because I don't want there to be any confusion about how do we apply this today. So God's spokesman, first of all, God's spokesman must be heard. God's spokesman must be heard. Verse 9, chapter 6, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. When Moses had a message to the people of God, their response was that they did not listen. Now remember what God spoke to them, or what Moses spoke to them, what the spokesman said to God's people. Verse 6, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That's the message that Moses, the spokesman of God, brought to the people. A wonderful message. A message of deliverance, of hope, of promise, of great power. And yet they did not listen. This word, listen, is really important in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word Shema. Shema. It is not simply to hear words or sounds, but to heed. It's a word that we don't use very often today. To heed. To truly hear someone out. That's what this word means. It is to pay attention, to give weight. To someone's words. That's what Shema or listen or hear means. As a matter of fact, this same word Shema is often translated obey, especially when it comes to the people's response to God's word. When, it, when God says to Shema, to listen, what he's saying is obey me. And it's translated that way, rightly so. So God views disobedience as ignoring him. Be wary. 
against choosing what you will obey and will not obey. When you choose like that, you're saying, I'll hear you here, but I'm just going to totally ignore and act like you didn't say that, God. Because that's just too hard, or I don't agree, or I don't like what you say. So when you choose to disobey, you are choosing to ignore your heavenly Father. And that is what the Israelites did. They disregarded the words of God through his spokesman. Now why? Well, it says it's because of their despondency. And as we looked at before, despondency in the Hebrew is a word for being small or short of soul. It is to possess this anguish of spirit. It is is even stronger. It is to say that you've been in in this state of, of depression and anxiety and small-souledness, faint-heartedness, is to be there so long and to not allow God to take you out of that situation and out of that mindset. It's to be there so long that now you have become impatient. This word is often also translated impatient. You see, trials discourage you, don't they? Trials discourage. That's what they do. But you, what we do is we allow ourselves to remain there, to remain discouraged, to, rem- to, to, just, to just give up. And the result is that you have no more room, no headroom emotionally for any more difficult circumstances or another difficult person. And so your fuse is short. You flip out when somebody says the wrong thing or when uh, somebody cuts you off on the road or when something doesn't go your way or you don't get what you want. You become impatient. And that's the result of trials staying heavy upon you and you not putting your eyes on God for him to lift you out of that spiritual state. You'll stay there, you'll get bitter against people, against God, and you get impatient with people, impatient with circumstances. And you can even get to the point, you can see it, can't you? You can even get to the point where God's word means very little to you anymore. His promises seem impossible. His comfort seems inadequate. His commands are unreasonable. Are you there today? Is that describing you? Discouraged by trials, accustomed to disappointment, used to feeling like God let you down again, and now his promises seem impossible? His comfort seems inadequate and his commands are just flat out unreasonable. Reading, much less hearing his word, is no longer sweet nor important. Brother, sister, you need to repent for ignoring your God. There's no way around it. I want to offer you words of comfort, and encouragement, but sometimes we need to hear a word of rebuke. And if that is where you are, you have allowed yourself to get there because of your trials. You have began to ignore your God. Repent of how you treat Him. Verse 10, verse 10 through 12, notice that the disobedience of the people does not affect the, the, the spokesman, does not affect the preacher, or excuse me, does affect the preacher. Uh, verse 10 through 12, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. And we saw Moses' response already, right? Behold, the, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? The disobedience, the 
stubbornness, the hard-heartedness of God's people does affect the preacher. Moses himself doubted that Pharaoh would listen since the Israelites didn't even listen. this, This sluggish obedience of the people is a discouragement to the preacher. I want you to know that. If you are slow to obey the Lord, that's between you and the Lord. He'll deal with you, and he does, praise God, because he's our Father, and he loves us enough to not let us just stay in our sin and our, our rebellion against him. But please know your slowness to obey in whatever sphere of life is a great discouragement to the preacher. It is. But, but, it's no excuse for the spokesman to stop speaking God's word. It's no excuse. Verse 13. Then the Lord said, spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, so God's response to Moses is, I, it doesn't matter if they're slow to obey, and if you have no confidence, because if God's own people won't obey, why why would the pagan obey? I get that. But nonetheless, God charges, he commands it, literally, he commands Moses and Aaron to go on prophesying, to go on proclaiming and commanding both Pharaoh and the people of God. He commands them concerning Israel and Pharaoh, is what it's saying. His command is, don't stop. Don't stop now. Don't be like the people in their disregard for my word. Go. Obey. Speak. God's spokesman must be heard. But if he isn't, he must continue to proclaim the word of God. Now, what does that mean for us? I want you to obey the Lord. Not me. The Lord. And I try to make it very clear when there is godly wisdom and advice, and then where there is clear-cut, black and white, God thus saith the Lord. And I try and make those other opinions and wisdoms and advice very sparse, if not non-existent. Because I want you to obey what God says. And that is, your, that is the expectation of God, Christian. That as you read the word, as you hear the word taught, as you hear the word preached, that you would obey. Not that you would just make the seat warm, and not that you would just understand what the preacher is saying, not that you would be able to recite the, you know, the three points of the outline. No, God's expectation is that when you leave here, you're going to do something about it. Otherwise, you didn't really hear him. You didn't really hear him. But even if you don't, dear church, I want you to know I will not change the message. The preacher must not change the message. It doesn't matter if, you, if the people don't like the message. It doesn't matter if they think it's too long. It doesn't matter if they feel uncomfortable under its teaching and its rebukes. It doesn't matter if your feelings are hurt. It doesn't matter if you don't agree. If God says it, that settles it. God commands you, church, to hear and obey. Not only must God's spokesman be heard, but he must be qualified. He must be qualified. Now, in Old Testament biblical times, the people who had major roles in the society society of Israel, in in the nation of Israel, those people who could fill those influential roles were limited to people in certain families and tribes. Kings could only come from the tribe of Judah. Priests could only come from the tribe of Levi. And even more specifically, 
through the, tribe, uh, through the family lineage of Aaron, the high priest. And though these, those strict rules actually were not set in stone yet at this point in the saga of God's people, even though they weren't set in stone yet, it was still important for Aaron to be proven that he was an Israelite and a brother to Moses, qualified for this role. And what's amazing here is even in this genealogy of Aaron, we are still reminded that Aaron's forefathers were fallen sinners in, the need, of, in need of grace. So it wasn't that his pedigree was perfect. It wasn't that his father, his grandfather, and his ancestors were perfect holy men. No, they were far from it. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, was a cheat, a liar, and a usurper from birth. Levi was a man of anger and vengeance, lying and cruelty. So far from perfect, Aaron's lineage was the product of grace. What does this mean for us today? There's a lot of other names that we could talk about. We can get into the meanings of the names. It's questionable as to what weight that has for us today. Uh, I mean, we, we don't know much about Kohath and Amram, uh, the grandfather and the, the, the father of Moses and Aaron, except that they spent most of their lifetimes as slaves in, in Egypt. Uh, Amram's name means an exalted people. So there seems to be like the, this understanding that the, his parents uh, had an expectation and a hope in the promises of God that God would exalt his people. That's what his name meant, an exalted people. And we know that the rest of the names after Aaron's lineage, um, they anticipate those who would minister in the tabernacle of God, including Korah, who would go on to try and take over Moses and Aaron's uh, positions of leadership. But Korah and, and his people, they were judged by God and buried alive in number 16. And yet at the same time, we see grace even in that lineage because Korah's sons would go on to write some of the Psalms and to give great praise to God. What does this mean for us? Well, the offices of elders, deacons, uh, the role of uh, a preacher or teacher is not for certain families only anymore. The notion that the pastor and his wife or children are the ones who do the bulk of ministry is complete foolishness in the church. All of the church are to be ministers in the church of God in some way. However, however, there are qualifications, strict qualifications for elders and deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3, God's spokesman must be Qualified. The qualifications of a deacon are found in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, which I take to, to mean their wives, must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Then he goes back to the husband. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. That excludes females, because how can a wife be a husband? Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of, of their children and their, house, and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The qualifications for an elder are in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, just above here, above deacons. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the offices, office of overseer, that is another word for elder or pastor, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, a bishop, an elder, a pastor then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, 
respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God, the household of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, that is, pride. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, verse 7, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. A deacon, an elder, must meet these qualifications. Titus 1, verse 5 through 8, adds to the qualifications of an elder that he must not be self-willed, he must love what is good, he must be just, devout, and self-controlled. We don't see any qualification of family lineage here, do we? Right? Or, or in any other verse where, there, where we're commanded to serve in the church of Christ. You don't have to be in a certain family to be part of the church. Why? Because the Christian is in Christ. Grafted into the family of God. And now, according to 1 Peter 2.9, we all are a chosen race. We all are a royal priesthood. We all are a holy nation. We all are a people for God's own possession. Why? So that we all may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. All of us are spokesmen of God. All of us. You've been saved for that purpose. Now, your audience might be different than an elder pastor or a preacher. But you are a spokesman nonetheless. Now, we are all called to serve the church. We're all called to be ministers of the gospel. We're all called to be spokesmen and proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet we are not all called to serve as preachers and teachers. According to James 3.1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Teachers and preachers incur a stricter judgment. So don't be so quick to want to teach. God will hold you, hold you to a higher standard. And so should the church, by the way. But as you do teach the word of God in some way, wherever you are, whether it's your family, your friends, your coworkers, as you do share the word of God and proclaim these principles I'm about to go over still apply to you. Overarchingly, the third point, last point of this morning, God's spokesman must be faithful. God's spokesman must be faithful. So as Aaron carries out his role of prophet back in Exodus 6, turn with me back there, if you would. As Aaron carries out his role as prophet, we, we see overall that God's spokesman must be faithful. That's a thread that runs through this passage. Yet under this umbrella of faithfulness, there are some specific demands of the spokesman of God. Specifically, God's spokesman must be accurate, fearless, God-centered, and faithful. Accurate, fearless, God-centered, and faithful. Exodus chapter 6, verse 28 through chapter 7, verse 2, we see this phrase in verse 29 of Exodus 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. And then chapter 7, verse 2, you shall speak all that I command you, you and your brother. All that I speak, all that I command. For the spokesman of God, editing the word of God is not an option. Line by line, precept by precept, giving the people of today the meaning of the author back then. Helping the modern reader connect with the ancient text, not the other way around. Not skipping, not skipping verses or truths because they're offensive or hurtful in our snowflake society. 
but saying what God says, commanding what God commands. That's the demand of the spokesman of God. Accuracy. To accomplish this takes time. Time in the pulpit, but more importantly, time in the study. Time in the office. For every hour I preach, it requires me minimum of 16 hours of study. Minimum. This means, church, that you are needed to serve in those practical ways so that I can focus. That's the expectation. Floyd Doug Schaefer said, said it better than I can, and I like quoting people when saying it directly is uncomfortable. He says, fling him into his office, tear the office sign from the door, and nail on the sign, study. Take him off the mailing list, lock him up with his books, get him all kinds of books, and his typewriter and his Bible. Set a time clock on him that will imprison him with thought and writing about God for 40 hours a week. Bend his knees in the Lonesome Valley. Fire him from the PTA. Cancel his country club membership. Burn his eyes with weary study. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical study sheet. Refuse his glad hand and put water in the gas tank of his car. Don't let him go anywhere. Keep him in that room. And I need your help to do that. Secondly, God's spokesman must be fearless. Verse 2 and 3 of chapter 7, God says, You shall speak all that I command you, you and your brother Aaron. You shall speak to, Moses, to, to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go of his, out of his land. Verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. It's, it's, it's stunning because God's command was to go and make demands of the most powerful and cruel man on earth. And not only that, but God also promises that when they do that, Pharaoh will not like what they say, but they are to go anyway. And so there, there, there inherently must be a, a courage, a fearlessness to the prophet, excuse me, the spokesman of God. There must be an a, a, a iron spine in the preacher. He must not worry about what the world says. He must not worry if he'll go viral or if somebody will walk out on one of his sermons. He must preach the word of God and know that the world hates the light because it exposes their evil deeds. So yes, yes, we must say that the teachings of Black Lives Matter are contrary to the word of God. We must preach and teach that the lifestyles and acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community has no place in Christ's church except that they come to repent and find complete forgiveness and freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must preach that the policies of our president are evil and satanic at their root. We must take a stand on the word of God without fear. That's what it means. Because God says it. And that settles it. God's spokesman must also be God-centered. Notice in verse 4 and 5, When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, the people of the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel. You see, as God promises that Pharaoh will oppose them, he also promises that he will take action. And notice that a result uh, is that the Egyptians will know that the Lord is Yahweh. How will they know that? Because Moses and Aaron will tell him. We need to proclaim the one true God. We need to tell people who he is so that when great world-changing epic events like COVID happen, they'll know who it's from. They won't go sacrificing to this God or that God. They'll know the source 
and they'll run to him for protection. And how will they know who God is if we, his spokesmen, do not preach him? They won't know who God is. They won't know who Christ is unless the preacher is sent, unless you go into your workplaces and your homes and proclaim who he is and what he has done. This means that the preacher must not preach himself, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus and Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. I once had a conversation with a man who was complaining about a, a preacher that he sat under for some time. I talked about how this preacher would open the Bible and share a little bit from it, but it would always end up, he would always end up talking about himself, how he did great things for God, where he came from in his past, what God has done through him in his past ministries. Friend, I'm, pre- I'm speaking to that guy. I don't care about your life story. And I hope that you don't care about my life story and that you would hold me to preach him, not me. That you would leave here not impressed with me, but impressed with God and Jesus Christ. Don't leave here saying, what a great preacher. What a great sermon. No, I, I, I pretty much guarantee that you won't leave here saying that. But no, what I want you to leave with is what a great God I have. What a great Savior we have. The preacher must not focus on man, but on God. The congregation does not need to know about me. They need to know more about him. Lastly, God's spokesman must be faithful. Verse 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron did it. As the Lord commanded them, thus they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron... 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. I love the simple wording of verse 6. It's just purposeful and it's repetitive, but it's intentionally repetitive. They were faithful to do what God told them to do. They fulfilled their calling. They obeyed their God. Nothing more, nothing less than obeying what God says. That's faithfulness. Do what God told you to do. And notice, they were old. I love that. Notice, they were old. And so age, friends, age does not limit your usefulness in the kingdom. It must not limit your resolve to live in faithful obedience to God either. There are far too many ministers of the gospel who are unfaithful. To their task. They go to a church, and if things don't go their way, or if something bigger or better comes along, they're gone. That's not faithfulness. It's selfish. Let's just call it what it is. It's selfish. Dear Christian, your task is to be faithful wherever you are. And hold me accountable to be faithful in my task. And I will hold you accountable to be faithful in your Christian life. These principles are so important for the life of the church. We must give attention and obedience to the word of God preached. We must have a high standard for the leaders of the church and the preachers. We must all be faithful men and women in our own ministries. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we fall short. If that's the standard, Lord, what hope do we have? Oh, but there's Christ, the perfectly faithful one, the great prophet. Your great spokesman, God, was your son. And he came proclaiming deliverance, release to the captives, deliverance, sight to the blind, deliverance to the enslaved. 
relief for the oppressed. Lord Jesus, you came preaching freedom and hope and forgiveness and repentance and the gospel. Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here this morning that has not heard that call from you, I pray that they would hear it today to find safety from the wrath of God underneath the shadow of the cross by placing their faith on Jesus Christ alone, trusting him that what he did is enough. And they don't have to worry about being good enough anymore. They just cast their lives upon you and trust that you'll change them and that you'll bring them safely to heaven. God, may we be faithful until that day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.